You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Broadway Gives Back Podcast. I'm your host, Jan Svensson. This podcast spotlights Broadway actors, shows, and organizations in their pursuit of social impact and philanthropy. Join us as some of the brightest lights on Broadway share their stories about their favorite charities and how they got involved, and the people and the causes who benefited from these philanthropic efforts. My guest this week, Kelly Overby, is, to quote her Twitter and Instagram bios, a Democrat, activist, feminist, actor, reader, writer, knitter, and perhaps most importantly, a Malvi agitator. Kelly has worked for over 30 years as a professional actress in theater, television, and film. She has performed in over 70 plays and has written several plays and penned the screenplay for the 2012 film, That's what she said. Kelly is the co-founder and executive director of A is For, which works to eradicate stigma against abortion care. She's an Eastern Principal Counselor at Actors' Equity Association and a founding member of Fair Wage On Stage, which advocates for fair wages for artists working in the theater. I am so thrilled to have her here today. Kelly, welcome to the Broadway Gives Back podcast. Thank you. It's so lovely to be here. So, Kelly, your social media handle is Willafly. Where does that come from? What does that mean? Uh, oh, I'm so that's so great that you asked me that. Um, Willafly is the way that my father pronounced Willowfly, which is the same thing as a mayfly. I'm from Kentucky and grew up fishing on the Kentucky Lake with my dad. And uh, during a willowfly hatch, where the mayflies swarm over the water as the sun is setting, uh, the bass chomp them up and it's a good time to go fishing because your lure just acts like one of those. And listen, I know I've named myself after a, a, a insect that doesn't live very long, <laughs> but mostly it just reminds me of my dad. Oh, that's so sweet. I love that story. So you're a Kentucky girl, a Southern I girl. I am. Um, when did you go to New York? Uh, circuitous route, went to Northwestern University and then to Los Angeles and then to New York. And I bounced back and forth between the coasts for a while because both places were interesting and had different, they offered different opportunities for work. Um, when I did my first Broadway play, uh, Buried Child in 96, I decided to stay in New York City. So I've mostly been here since then. 
Wow. All right. So let's talk about your career. Um, okay. 70 plays. Wow. This is incredible. You are such a prolific actor. Um, and I just wondered, you said Barry Child was your first um, play on Broadway, but how did you like come into the world of acting to begin with? How did you get your start and where did your drive for that come from? Uh, I started acting in high school. I started on the speech team at Murray High School in Murray, Kentucky, and um, started doing little scenes and then doing the plays. I was Emily at 14 years old in our mm. town. And I think what happened to me was that I recognized it was something I understood how to do and that people seemed to appreciate the talent that I had. And that was encouraging. And so when I went to school to Northwestern, I thought, well, obviously I'm going to major in theater. I really didn't have like some amazing vision that I was going to see my name in lights or anything. <laughs> I just knew that I understood the language of theater, understood the language of acting innately and uh, liked it and wanted to study it and wanted to do it. And I'm very fortunate that uh, I've worked fairly consistently throughout my career, pretty much immediately after graduating from college. Yeah. I mean, your body of work is incredible. Um, any, any stories or any like specific memories or, or moments that you know, stand out for you, sort of a highlights reel for you? Like, are there? Wow. So many, so many. Well, uh, I started in Los Angeles uh, in the late 80s and did a lot of television right away. Um, and it was very fun and it paid me money, which was amazing. I couldn't believe it. But uh, I... I still looked upon New York City and New York theater as kind of the mecca of acting and was desperate to kind of get to New York to do plays there. That was the most magical thing I could imagine doing with my life. So I actually flew myself to New York City to audition to become an apprentice for the Williamstown Theater Festival. Mm -hmm. And I went to that audition and did not get chosen for it. <laughs> but because I had an agent, because I was working in L.A., uh, they set me up for an audition for a play at Manhattan Theater Club called The Debutante Ball by Beth Henley at the time, uh, directed by Norman Renee. And I auditioned for that. I got a call back. I flew back to L.A. I had to fly myself back to New York for the call back. And then I booked the job. And when I got that news, I was on cloud nine. I couldn't, I, I just, it was how I got my equity card. And um, I think it might've paid me 300 something dollars a week, <laughs> but I felt, I felt like there was no other place in the world I would rather be than working on that play. Um, and it was pretty exciting because it was on stage two of Manhattan theater club where I, I've worked there several times since then. Um, but so many amazing people came to see that play. I think I met Aidan Quinn and Mary Kay Place. And believe it or not, Madonna came to mm. see that play. She was doing Speed the Plow at the right. time. And uh, I met her and she's just the tiniest person. She was lovely. <laughs> she, but I was surprised at how small she was. Um, but anyway, that was an exciting moment. One of them, one of the many. So speaking of your equity card, um, you're on the National Council for Actors' Equity. I am. Um, and can you tell us what that is and what it entails? Uh, it's governance. 
uh, of the union. There are, I believe, 86 or so of us from across the country, three different regions. Um, we meet monthly as a full council and each region has their monthly uh, meetings as well. And we deliberate on topics affecting the union and vote on those things and make decisions for the union. It's very exciting and interesting work and I've learned a lot doing it, um, not only about unionism, but governance and coming to decision making it's never easy um everyone has the best of intentions but we don't always agree so it's it's complicated and it involves human beings <laughs> so uh it, it's it's fascinating to do and uh it can be fairly time consuming and it's a volunteer position but i'm really proud of uh being part of it well it seems like you know you're so ingrained in you know the broadway space and in the theater space and then you actually take that passion for your work and you also then give it back to the community you know that that you work with and for um does that spirit of collaboration that we talk about in the theater does that extend into your union work like as you were just saying we're human and people there's conflicts and and different people with different communication styles and different opinions is there a collaborative feeling um, oh, at Actors' absolutely. Equity? Absolutely. Um, I yes, absolutely. Um, you know, it's 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 interesting because it uses a different part of my brain than I'm I'm used to in my theater career and my acting career. Um, I'm a creative person, and and that's mostly fun for me. And but I'm also interested in using. I guess it's the right side of my brain or the left side of my brain um, for for problem solving. And a lot of the work is problem solving. So you're, mm -hmm. you're working with people who approach problems differently or see different problems that need to be prioritized or they prioritize different things. So it's about coming to consensus and making arguments. And I still get nervous speaking extemporaneously because I'm most comfortable having a script, but it requires that we speak extemporaneously and intelligently and making our points it's like debate. So um, I'll, I'm not, I'm still not in my comfort zone. I'm in my second term and I'm still not in my comfort zone, but I do it because I think it's important. Um, and I'd like to think that the things I've said have helped um, make positive change. Yeah. What do they say that every day you should do something that's outside your comfort zone, right? To help you grow as a person. Certainly doing that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, sort of a segue to that is um, fair wage on stage. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's somehow a little bit related to the work you've done or maybe informed by some of the work you've done with Actors' Equity. Um, so you're a co-founder of this organization. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I'm an original, uh, I guess, an original, one of the original. You are an original. You are an original. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, a, a, really a bunch of friends got together. Uh, I was not among at the first very, very, very first meetings, but um, essentially we came into focus as a group uh, around the 2016 negotiations for the off-Broadway contract. And most of us worked that contract and have friends that worked that contract a lot. And really felt that it needed to be updated and pushed forward into the future in terms of salaries because we weren't earning enough money to live on what we were making when we were working full time and we're professionals and theater, including off-Broadway, brings in 
millions of dollars to the city. So we were making these arguments and we were organized by equity to uh, help give them leverage in their negotiation. And it was very successful at the end of the negotiation. I think we ended up getting a in that contract up to 83% salary increases uh, because in part of the work that we did to put some focus among membership about why this was important. Um, you know, I, I like to say theater artists make magic, but we don't live on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. We still need to to do a little bit better. And I think that we can, and, and hopefully we will. There's a lot of consciousness raising going on in our culture right now about a lot of things. And I think that includes the labor movement and how people who, it's really interesting to me. I have a friend, Carson Elrod, who's mm-hmm. uh, was part of Fair Wage. He, he also has started recently a group called Be an Arts Hero, which is advocating, among other things, to create um, a secretary in the cabinet for arts and culture. And he was just speaking to the Small Business Affairs Committee uh, a couple of weeks ago. And he was he spoke very eloquently about the need for the culture to come back from COVID requires arts and entertainment. And we need to value the people who do this higher than we do. And I listened to a lot of questions from the Congress people, smart questions, but I noticed that, and this is not a bad thing necessarily. It's, it's problematic, but it's not bad. I think people look to the arts as kind of being a magical thing. So it's, it's not often that they think about it as labor, as mm-hmm. work people who actually do this for a living. We have to actually also consider that to be an artist is not mutually exclusive with being a worker, someone who deserves to make enough money to live on and do all of the things we all wanna do. We wanna buy homes, we wanna have relationships and go on vacation or have children, retire, you know, just buy some shoes, (laughs) whatever it is. And um, the mythology of the starving artist, how that's sort of, meant to be indicative of one's passion, I think is, um, is wrong. I mean, you hear so many stories and, and you even alluded to it in the beginning of this conversation about people have to come to Hollywood to you know earn some money so that they can go back to New York and actually do their work, their craft. Right. And act. that's the way I thought of it back then. Yeah. I would yeah. do some television and I'd come back and do a play and really, you know, it shouldn't be like that. Listen, I know that it's hard to run a theater too. I'm not saying that it's an easy fix, but I think that the algorithm and the math and the way we apportion what we value needs to include the artists and the people who work backstage and and the people who actually make the shows. Right. Well, on this podcast, we've had so many guests and we all talk about how, you know, obviously the last two years have impacted theater in such a big way. And, you know, I think that the business model in some ways is going to have to be blown up and rethunk, so to speak. And I think they're working on that now. And hopefully all of this gets taken into consideration along with inclusion and diversity and and many other things that are, you know, top of mind right now and really important and have not been addressed before. It's, it's I think it's a great time to reconnoiter and, and hopefully (laughs) we'll, we'll do better now. I hope. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I really want to dig into um, A is for. Yay! Um, I'm I'm passionate about this as well. I love your passion. I love the fact that you um, you acted upon something that was important to you. A lot of people, um, I mean, obviously we've seen you get involved now with you know with Actors Equity and with Fair Wage on stage, but 
you know, the um, reproductive rights and um, taking, you know, destigmatizing the idea of abortion is so important outside of the world of theater. And, um, and you've taken all of your, you know, your knowledge and your passion and even I'm sure a lot of your experience in the theater to help sort of formulate this, this organization. I want to hear everything about it. So um, uh, first of all, why don't we just, just, if you could let everybody know what the organization is and how you started it, I think that would be really a great way to kick off the, the sure. conversation. Absolutely. Uh, AS4 is a nonprofit organization that amplifies art and artists to work to destigmatize abortion. And uh, we started 10 years ago. This is our 10th anniversary. Um, I started this with Martha Plimpton, who is a friend of mine. We knew each other for a long time, and then we played sisters in the coast of Utopia. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think kind of became sisters. And as I like to say, we bonded over our mutual rage <laughs> <laughs> over many things, but uh, a lot of it centered around advocating for women. Um, we were at a party in Los Angeles and we were complaining, grousing about Rush Limbaugh had just, I guess, called Sandra. And I don't know how to pronounce her last name, if it's Fluck or Fluke. Um, she was advocating for insurance coverage for contraception at Georgetown University, and he called her a slut on his show and slut shamed her. I don't know if people remember that, but that happened. And we were discussing that at this party, and we're all extraordinarily angry and frustrated. And someone said, well, we might as well just wear the Scarlet A. So it's that was the genesis. We started talking, you know, maybe we should do that. We should reappropriate Hester Prynne's Scarlet Letter and name it for ourselves. So A, your A is for whatever you decide it is. If it's anger or abortion rights or advocacy or agency over your body, whatever it is to you, you tell us what your A is for. And so that's where the name comes from. And we formed a nonprofit. Um, and ever since we've been doing our best. And it's taken us a while to kind of focus our mission. You know, like I say, at first we were just artists who'd never done anything like this before, formed a formal organization. And I'm really proud of the work that we've done. I wish we didn't have to exist at all. I wish this wasn't a problem, but unfortunately it seems to be an ongoing issue. And, uh, we have three programs that I'm really excited about, um, among the other things that we do. But the, the main programs are playwriting contest, uh, one act playwriting contest that uh, focuses on reproductive justice. We last year, this is our second year, year having it. And our first year last year, we had like 218 submissions. And this year we had 252 submissions. Wow. We um, selected three and we then we present in a, a festival so line so far those festivals have been online because uh covid hmm. but eventually i would love to see it in a black box in new york city um i hope that do you, happens at some point do you use those festivals as fundraising opportunities of course i mean yeah. everything everything is a fundraising opportunity and but but part of our mission as, as i said is destigmatizing abortion um eradicating stigma against abortion 
I think that the theater is such a brilliant place to change people's perspective on things. It offers a safe place for people to be uncomfortable with new ideas. And I think what happens in a, in a play or a musical is that the audience receives information in an emotional way. And when we talk about abortion, usually we're repeating talking points from news programs and it's a political conversation and it's a debate and we're very entrenched and it's on this really extreme binary. And there's no appreciation or attention paid or focus on people who are actually needing this very common medical service. And I get excited about how theater can have a kind of alchemy for people and help generate empathy and understanding in a way that they might not have considered um, had they been having a debate with just the regular political talking points. So the playwriting contest is great because it offers writers, first of all, a chance to explore the subject matter and uh, they can do it any way they want. We, they, they can make it science fiction, they can make it his, historical, they can, they, can, they can use any genre, they can be romantic, it doesn't matter. Um, but it, it, it's a prompt for creativity to think about reproductive justice as uh, it affects people's lives. And the other thing is that when we have the presentation, people get to see performances. So far they've only been online, but they get to watch presentations, they watch the readings, and then they can have a conversation with the play right after. They can ask questions, there's a talk back. And conversation after play is always so interesting to me. You know, mm -hmm. you go see a play, you go to Joe Allen or you go to some restaurant and you have a conversation about a thing that you haven't thought about before. And that's what makes it in part so exciting. And I think that's why it's a great opportunity to kind of explore actually what abortion really is, as opposed to um, just this political debate that we're having that actually never gets us anywhere. That's so interesting. As you're talking, I was thinking about, I can't wait for this to be in person. And I can just imagine, you know, people seeing these plays um, and then going to, you know, a venue and having sort of a talk back and having this discussion, almost like a book club, except, you know, for theater. Yeah. Um, right. And, and I mean, if you think about the book club idea, I mean, it's, it's exactly that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's people opening up and having that conversation. Um, so that, so the playwriting thing is one of the programs that you do. Exactly. And, and what are the other two? The other two, one of them is a comic book series. I, I, it's, I wish there was another way to say it. It's a comic book makes it sound like it's funny. It could be funny, but it's a, it's a, a graphic, like a graphic, graphic novel. art, yeah. mm -hmm. um, graphic art, uh, based on stories. We have one out, uh, currently on, uh, about stories of clinic escorts. And the one that we're working on now is about traveling for abortion, which looks like more and more people are having to do, uh, traveling out of state or far distances to have the access to essential medical care, basically. Um, and we're in the process of, of working on that. And that's really interesting and exciting as well. Um, the third thing that we do is we 
donate money to orgs and uh, abortion funds across the country who are in particular need, who might not necessarily be spotlighted by current events. But um, so far in our existence, we've given almost $200,000 to those organizations and funds. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So back up for a second. So mm-hmm. the graphic art, graphic novel, mm-hmm. who creates those for you? Is that a contest too, or how does that work? It's not a contest. No, these stories would never be in competition with one another. Um, we're curating stories from pe- through people we know. Uh, the original book came about because we had solicited stories for anyone to share with us, and we'd put those stories on our website. And then later we made the decision we had the idea to create this book um the second time through knowing ahead of time we're creating a book i certainly i wanted to be careful that we didn't create an atmosphere where we appear to be evaluating one story over another so um because we work with some incredible people who are already aware of a lot of stories or access to people who have stories um we're simply doing direct asks to people to to share um and the book, both books have, the first one was and the second one will be edited by Emily Flake, who's an illustrator and artist you may have seen in the New Yorker, among other places. Um, and they're really insightful. I actually love the comic book. Um, I don't know what to say it is, but, you know, comic book way of, of reading a story. I actually recently just purchased Mouse because it was banned in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And um, it's pretty, it's pretty wonderful. It's, it's pretty effective, I think, because the artwork offers you a kind of a, I guess, distance from the horrors so that you're able to take it in in a different way. I think it offers a distance from the horror, but at the same time, it also, because of the graphic style, it allows you to kind of put yourself in it and co-create with it, I think. Yes. So yeah. it takes you deeper into it while it also distances you. Like it kind of does both. Um, it's such an interesting genre. Um, and it's so interesting that you, you've selected that because in some ways it, it complements and also um, sort of balances that emotional component of the whole conversation of abortion and abortion rights. Um, and then, so you're working with other orgs and you're, you're almost, you're granting money, right. Um, to yes. other orgs, which is great that you can work in that kind of model. Um, and it seems like 
well, there's Planned Parenthood, obviously, that does so much work and, you know, obviously has, right. so, but you're going into more sort of grassroots type organizations. Is that what you're doing or how do well, you just select yes. the orgs? It just depends on what's happening that month. Um, you know, the areas where we might, I mean, Texas has been in trouble for a while. A lot of states now are in a lot mm -hmm. of trouble. Different organizations do different things. For example, you know, our mission to eradicate stigma against abortion in our culture is, is, is hard to measure. It's hard to kind of say, oh, we did it. <laughs> it's probably right. an ongoing pursuit, but uh, we don't provide direct services. So Planned Parenthood is an organization that provides direct services and other organizations uh, like the Center for Reproductive Rights, their attorneys, mm -hmm. and they're taking on cases all over the world um, to seek justice for um, reproductive rights. And uh, we donate to different kinds. We donate to um, abortion funds, um, places in country where they're, they may be struggling, where there are states where there may only be one clinic left, clinics where people are coming from other states who might need more support. Um, there are so many wonderful people out there trying so hard to offer access to people who need abortion. And it's we're all on edge right now because we're waiting for the decision from the Supreme Court, um, the Dobbs case in Mississippi to see what happens. Because if Roe ends up being overturned, at least half of the states in the country have trigger laws on the books already that will make abortion illegal in those states. Right. I mean, your organization could not be at a more timely manner right now than we, it's so relatable and it's so important right now. Um, because of what's going on. <laughs> I, I think that for years, people have always, I've had conversations all along the way with people who have said, well, but Roe will never be in jeopardy. Roe will never be. We're fine. That was, that was me. That was me. I would yeah. have these conversations all the time. And I 10 years ago, who would have ever thought this, right? It's, it's, you should be able to presume that you have the right to abortion. You should be able to presume and not think about it. But unfortunately, uh, what's happening is happening. So as a matter of fact, the other thing that I should mention that we do every year, uh, and speaking of Broadway, uh, we have the only, as far as I'm aware, we have the only Broadway community event um, in support of, of abortion rights. Uh, every year we have an event called Broadway Acts for Women. Well, it has been called Broadway Acts for Women. Uh, we raise money. We In the beginning, we we had beneficiaries and lately because of COVID it has been the fundraiser for, for us to just keep going. Um, and that's how our beneficiary program became more formalized. We thought, well, we'll keep the money that we make from Broadway acts so that we can stay in existence. And then we'll have a monthly beneficiary program um, all throughout the year for other, for other orgs. But uh, we changed the name this year, our event will be called Broadway Acts for Abortion, because I think it's very important to, as per our mission statement, use the word abortion. That's what we're talking mm -hmm. about. So it shouldn't be euphemized. And also, um, more than just women have abortions, trans men and non-binary people also need abortion care. So uh, we felt that that was very appropriate, and I'm very excited about it. And this year... Uh, the event will be on October 2nd at 54 Below, where it's always been. 
And for people who don't know what it is, it's um, a very fast and furious and exciting evening of celebrity karaoke where Broadway stars come and mm-hmm. bidders in the house can, uh, we have auctions of prizes, really exciting prizes. I think one year we had John Lithgow would paint your pet. <laughs> <laughs> you can, you can, uh, you can bid on uh, that prize. Mm-hmm. And if you win, you also win the privilege of choosing the song that, for example, Betty Buckley will get up now and sing. And I think she sang Creep. It was some, <laughs> it was some Nirvana or something like that. I can't it was, it, but it, fantastically, and it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It sounds like a lot of fun, but I mean, and also, I mean, obviously the point behind it is so important. You know, I just keep thinking about, you know, what is going on currently in the world with regard to abortion. And I think you're right. Normalizing and saying the word abortion is really important. Reminds me of the vagina monologue, saying the word vagina, you have to say, yeah. right? <laughs> um, so, and this idea of, of t- you know, getting rid of the stigma of abortion, and you were saying it's very hard to measure that. And I was wondering, are there, there must be studies um, that you can use, like secondary research studies, where you can sort of monitor, like how people feel about, you know, abortion and over time, and you can see if your, you know, organization is even, you know, making an impact or following the trend of, of you know, of making things better. Um, I know it's a really long thing, but the marketing person in me is sort of thinking about the marketing research of it and well, how, to, how to measure. It, it's hard because of sti- stigma. Stigma is shame, right? So sometimes right. where there's shame, there's not a lot of conversation. There's not a lot of data collection. But I do know the, the Guttmacher Institute is an excellent resource, uh, G-U-T-T-M-A-C-H-E-R.org um, on all stats, abortion. And as far as I understand, it's upwards of 70% of Americans believe that abortion should be legal. And yet this is happening. So we're facing, I, and I, I think there are like maybe less at this point, less than 90% of counties in the country that have clinics available. So um, something's wrong. <laughs> Something is very wrong. And it is the, you know, the at risk and the people who need it the most who are the ones who are going to have the hardest time of course. Um, accessing abortion. And so it just feeds that, you know, that narrative that's so unhealthy for this country. Um, I'm, I'm trying not to get too political, but as you can see, well, I'm starting I mean, to you like... Can't. Listen, <laughs> po- politics, being political means policy policy means you know your point of view and of course we're all going to have a point of view about a lot of things um i i mean politics has become euphemistic with something sort of cynical and bad but i I mean it's impossible not to have an opinion i think on things that are important to you it is such a trigger point because it is such an emotional in addition to being a political um, topic. And I keep thinking about what you were saying earlier in this conversation about negotiations and about collaboration and about listening to each other's points of views and coming at this, you know, both emotionally and intellectually. And it's just, for some reason, you know, just abortion has become this lightning rod where we can't use any of those skills and common sense that, you know, that we should, um, because we're just so polarized and it's, it's, it is such an emotional thing, right? It is. I, I mean, my, my theory about it is really pretty cynical. I think that the people who are leading the charge uh, policy-wise are, I think they're 
goals are far more sinister. I don't, I don't know that those people actually have an opinion on abortion per se, but I, I think they, they perform as though they do to, to work people up to get support or to create theater, if you will, mm-hmm. around the country. Um, that's what the protests are. But I think what it really is, we understand this, is it's, it's it, it, in order to keep people at the top, in order to keep the few people with a lot of power and white supremacy and all the money, you have to have an underclass. And preventing women from having, and other people who need abortion from having um agency over their own bodies and futures, burdening them with families that they're not ready to have or don't want to have, keeps people impoverished Mm -hmm. and keeps society in chaos. So while we're all worried about this and having to manage this and having triage over this, you know, they are hoarding all of the wealth and power. And so, you know, I know that the spokespeople for the anti-abortion uh, organizations are perhaps impassioned and believe that it's wrong, but I, I don't. I don't know that the policymakers at the top care about it at all. I agree with you. I um. Did you read Barack Obama's book? I have started it. I have been buying so many books. Yeah. <laughs> I'm well, he, on he, all of them. he touches on this about how the the politi- political. Um, policymakers um, have been leveraging and using some of these emotional flashpoints, right? Um, Religion being one of them and um, abortion another, right? Here's an interesting statistic that you will find on Guttmacher. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, if it's Guttmacher or Guttmacher, probably the latter, but uh, Kentucky, that's my Kentucky. I don't know how to pronounce any vowels properly. (laughs) That's why my spelling is also atrocious. Anyway, I digress. Um, I digress so far now that I can't remember what I was going to say. Oh, the statistic about um, the number of over half of the people who have abortions um, self-identify as Christian. I just think that's an interesting statistic. Yeah, it is very interesting. Um, Yeah, but that whole far-right movement, I, um, gosh, (laughs) I was at an event and I was seated next to Newt Gingrich a few months ago. Wow. And, um... It was so strange because I sat down and he was right next to me and we're wearing masks. And I was also, it was in a place, there were lots of people and everybody was wearing masks. And I, he turns, he sticks his hand out and he says, hi, who are you? And I said, hi, I'm Jan. Who are you? And he says, I'm Newt. And it took me like beat, <laughs> beat, beat. And then I went, oh my God, this is Newt Gingrich. <laughs> you were probably are- grateful you had a mask on. Part of me, but the crazy part was for four hours we sat there and he was charming and talked to me and engaged with me. And I was torn up inside, you know, because of, I mean, here's sort of the architect of so much of the evil that's going on right now in so many areas, not just, but with, with, um, you know, reproductive rights and, um, but the whole media and politicizing of it all. And it was a very weird conversation. It was a really weird night. I and can only I, imagine. Yeah. I, I tried to stay civil. Um, I did stay civil, but I'm still like sort of twisted about it. I think about it still like, what could I have done something different? You know, should I have done something different? Um, I don't know. But, I mean, what would you, what could you do really? <laughs> I know, I know moments. that's exactly it. But you know, it goes back to that. What could you do? I mean, I love the fact that 
you have done so much and you've taken the initiative and you've put yourself out there. And a lot of people don't do that, you know, and I feel like that is a huge thing. And part of this podcast is about that. It's about, you know, taking action and being an activist or putting your money where your mouth is or your time, your energy or whatever it is. And I just, I have so much respect for um, the work that you've done as an actor, but the work that you've done um, in all these other areas um, that make the world a better place. And I'm just, you know, that was one of the reasons I really wanted to bring you on this podcast. And I'm so grateful that you're here. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I mean, I hope I'm do making a tiny difference um however i can i i believe in all these things and i i i i'm grateful to be surrounded by a community of people who are also advocates and impassioned artists and putting their money where their mouth their mouths are <laughs> what advice would you give to um to me or to others listening on how to you know, be a person of action when it comes to social activism or, or philanthropy? I think it's just a matter of getting involved, staying informed, um, making a monthly donation of any amount to the charity of your choice, um, speaking out, having casual conversations. If your cause is abortion rights, then start talking about abortion to people have a conversation, get it out of the closet. See, that's what I should have done with Newt. I should have just had a conversation about abortion. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would have been very interesting. Did yeah. You, I, I have one question for you. Did you, did you glean anything about him from your conversations other than he was just polite? Oh, he was more than polite. He was charming and lovely. And, um, no, the only thing, I mean, he um, he did talk to me a lot about um, his sort of media expertise and how he's, um, you know, he works for Fox. He told me, like, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> Wait, which, which news channel is it? <laughs> yeah, you're right. Um, and it was mostly, like I said, very polite conversation, but he was also extremely interested in... Um, uh, we were at the Kennedy Center Honors, and my fiance was the producer and director. So he was very interested in sort of the, the production and the you know that 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 point of view. Um, and I, um, well, this is actually really kind of bizarre. So at the end of the the show, um, I said goodbye to him, and he was he and his wife both were so nice and big hugs. And I'm like, oh my god. So I I left him, and I was sort of I was really relieved. And after the show, we went to the after party. It was a dinner. And there, everybody was um, tested so you could take your masks off. And um, my fiance and I are walking around. And at one point, we're talking to Nancy Pelosi. And um, all of a sudden, I hear somebody yelling my name from like the table over. <laughs> and I look, and it's Newt Gingrich. Wow. Jan, Jan, come over here. Come say hi. Like, I was that just so strange. I was <laughs> So Glenn, my fiance, looks at me like, what is going on here? And I go, I think we have to go say hello. I'll introduce you. He's very interested in what you do for a living. And so we, we went over there and we did talk to them and um, and he was lovely. And then at the end, I did look at him straight in the eyes and I shook his hand and I said, I'm glad to have had a conversation with somebody who's 
um, on the other side of the aisle and whose politics I don't really agree with, but I'm glad we could have civil discourse tonight and, and get to know each other. Sure, yeah. But I'm not sure I really meant that, but I, I think I did at the moment. <laughs> I think I think there's room for that truth in, 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 the, in the soup. Um, see, at the end of the day, everybody wants to be a rock star. Yeah, well... I'm not sure I do, but man, that was really weird. Um, he is a, he's a rock star and, and, or he tries to be anyway. Um, but I will say this, he was very kind. He was very nice. Um, and I think this idea um, of kindness is actually just to segue a little bit is, um, is really important. And I know that so many of the guests that have come on this podcast and just in general, people, especially in the last two years have been talking about just the concept of being kind. Um, and I just wondered, you know, if, if I could ask you the question, like, are there any random acts of kindness that you've performed that you'd, you'd want to share with us? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Random acts of kindness. Well, I mean, listen, I, I, I try to exercise <laughs> the practice of being kind to people all the time, but because I think there's a difference between being kind and being nice. Talk about that. That's really I, interesting. I don't think nice. I don't think nice is is good for people, especially women. I, I think that um, we're often raised to be nice, and I say that in quotes, um, which basically means not to have boundaries. I think that that's what we intuit as nice, not having boundaries, allowing people to say things to us, whatever. Um, not standing up for ourselves. So I think that it, you can be perfectly kind to people and also have the strongest boundaries. Um, and I like to practice that. And I like to encourage that. I love that. Thank you so much for saying that because no one has talked about this idea of kind versus nice and boundaries. So that's so insightful. I really appreciate that. Um, thank you for My sharing pleasure. it. My pleasure. So last question. If I could wave a magic wand and grant you one personal wish and one big universal wish. Oh what gosh. <laughs> I know there's so many. And if it's more than one, go for it. We're never prepared for these moments. Well, I I certainly wish that the era of COVID would come to an end and that we could find a new healthy beginning as a society globally and in the United States and um, use the things that this time has taught us to build back better. Um, I would wish that we could codify a federal law that protected abortion rights so that we didn't need to depend on Roe or didn't need to worry about our access to abortion care, depending on what our zip code is, so that we were all as United States citizens free to have the access to the medical care we need. Um, speaking of medical care, I, I wish we had, um, uh, I'm losing, what is the, <laughs> what is the, you know, universal health care. I wish we had universal health care. Um, personally, <laughs> I would love to just have some 
freedom from needing to be an activist so that I could go back to being an artist full time and writing plays and doing plays and knitting some more dog sweaters and reading more books. Well, hopefully you will find that balance in that time. Um, but in the, in the meantime, we appreciate your activism. And I thank you so much for being a guest on Broadway Gives Back today. It has been my pleasure. Thank you so much, Jan. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Broadway Gives Back podcast. Broadway Gives Back is part of the Broadway Podcast Network. Special thanks to my producing partner, writer, editor, and friend, Jim Lochner. And thank you to everyone at BPN, including Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, and Kimberly Garris. I'd also like to thank Julian Hills from the Bulldog Agency and Eric Becker from Broderick Street Music. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you stream your podcasts. You can also follow Broadway Gives Back on Facebook and Instagram at Broadway Gives Back Podcast and on Twitter at Broadway Gives. To learn more, visit bpn.fm slash Broadway Gives Back. Thanks so much. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.